0: Hello, POSNA members and guests, and welcome to our subspecialty day, Lower Extremity Discussion Podcast, part of the 2020 POSNA Virtual Annual Meeting. This is your host, Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm here today with our session moderators, Phil McClure from the International Center for Limb Lengthening in Baltimore. Hello. Thanks for
1: having me. Excited to be here.
0: As well as Chris Yopes from Nationwide Children's in Columbus.
2: Hello. Good evening.
0: So two papers have been selected from the session to be highlighted, and we have the opportunity today to go into a little more detail with those authors. Their full narrated presentations are available online, but I'll give a short recap and then we'll jump into the discussions. So first, we have uh, Dr. Harold Van Boss from China's Hospital in Philadelphia with his presentation, Correction of mild and moderate arthrogrypotic knee flexion contractures with guided growth, which evaluated the results of femoral anterior distal hemiepiphysiodesis plus or minus posterior knee release in 91 knees in 57 patients. Findings included an average correction rate of 2 degrees per month with an average initial correction from 35 to 8 degrees with rebound at final follow-up to 19 degrees. There was an average of 11 degrees of arc of motion lost. Ambulatory ability was improved for most patients. Knees with contractures less than 25 degrees treated with guided growth without a posterior release corrected well, while knees with contractures of 30 to 40 degrees did well with the addition of the posterior release. Contractures greater than 40 degrees were much less predictable. There's a lot of great information in this presentation, and I'll turn it over now to our moderators.
2: Thank you, Julia. This is Chris Yopes from Columbus, Ohio. Harold, I really liked your paper. You have some great results. I've done this technique a few times and I found that some of the kids get some anterior knee pain. Do you have any tips on your technique to avoid having impingement of the guided growth plates on the patellofemoral joint?
3: Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. That's a frequent problem that we have as well. I try as much as possible to place my plates as peripheral as possible, so as far from the patellofemoral joint as possible, and then to really make sure the plate gets sucked down well. And that's also we put the plates in. of at a 45 degree angle to the sagittal plane. So we're hopefully angling the plates a little bit away from the extension mechanism. But we certainly do have kids that during the period of time that the plates are in place, that they're uncomfortable, that they don't want to bend their knees a whole lot. So Dr. Van
1: Bossi, we've had some experience with this technique in Baltimore, and we've noticed a lag behind the overcorrection of the distal femur compared to the correction of the contracture or the soft tissue deformity. Have you noticed the same thing and you feel that that's a problem or is it just the price of this technique?
3: No, I think you're absolutely right. When I explain to the parents, I tell them that you're doing two things. One is to get the bone to change its shape and the others, to get the soft tissues to stretch out. And that's why the KAFO is so very important. It's a static KAFO. It's not a dynamic one. So it's got ratcheting locks. You just try to make it tighter over time as you can. But if the soft tissues don't get stretched out, then all you do is get this bigger and bigger recurvatum deformity of the distal femur, but no difference in your contracture. And that's also why I think this technique doesn't work for contractures over 45 or 50 degrees, or at least should be used with caution in in those larger contractures because the soft tissues are just not going to come along.
2: Thanks, Harold. This is Chris again. I noticed that you had a relatively high recurrence rate, which is very common with these contracture patients. Have you had any thought about using a sleeper plate technique where if you expect that you're going to have to reinsert the guided growth plates again at the near future to just remove the metapseal screw and then just come back and reinsert that screw at a later date?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. And it's something I think about every time I'm putting a plate back in. But the problem is that it's usually two or three years between the time that you take the plates out to the time that you have enough of a contracture that you want to put them back in. So I think that leaving a sleeper plate in there, going back to your your previous question about discomfort around the knee, I think it would just get in our way. Got it. Thank you.
1: So, Dr. Van Bossie, I, I know there's some conversations back and forth out there about plates versus screws for this. Are you doing... Both? Are you only doing plates? What's your opinion on that?
3: I've only ever done plates. It's a technique that I'm comfortable with and that I think is predictable. I've never tried the screws. I've seen some papers on the screws and just have not had the interest in trying it. Again, because I find that I can do quite well with the plates. I suppose the advantage of the screws would be a smaller incision and possibly less soft tissue irritation. But on the other hand, some concern about breakage of screws or difficulty putting the screws in the exact place that you want them. Great, thank you. We we had a
1: very high failure rate, and we've gone to doing what you've been doing the whole time, pretty much at our institution. So you know, interested in different experiences with that, but we've we've gone your way basically.
2: Uh, Harold, this is Chris again. This is my uh, last question for you. I saw that your average slate removal was about eighteen months. Was there something special about that time span? How did you decide that eighteen months versus say two years
3: was the right amount of time to remove them? So plate removal is based upon clinical examination. So hopefully uh, we remove the plates when the knees are completely straight or pretty close to it. But the other criteria for taking out the plates is if we have just hit a plateau, that it's been now a year or two years without any real change in what the what the knee is doing. In that case, I'd rather take the plate out, let the child grow somewhat more and try again and hope that it's a combination of the size of the child and maybe the diligence in wearing the KFO at nighttime. But hopefully we'll get a little bit of correction then.
2: So you're not concerned about creating a irreversible epipsiadesis by having them in a certain period of time?
3: I haven't yet. That's not one of the complications that I've luckily had. Although now that you've said that, they'll probably have my next case. But so far, the growth plates have always recovered. And that's, of course, the reason why you get the relapses is that the physis, which is oblique, when you take the plates out, it's going to automatically go back to its anatomic position over time. And the whole idea of using the KAFO after the plates come out is in hopes of getting the soft tissues to gradually stretch out as the physis remodels itself. And hopefully you're able to maintain some of the straightening that you achieved initially.
2: Perfect. Thanks.
1: Bill? Hey, Dr. Van Bossy, last question from Baltimore. Uh, I either, I didn't see it or you know, missed it somehow, but how much of the correction in the sort of moderate, you know, thirty to fifty degree contractors were you getting from your release versus the uh, tethering? Because I would say overall your results are fantastic, and I you know would hope to pr- reproduce them myself. And I'm looking for you know how much do I expect to get in the OR? What can I confidently leave to the plates in the future?
3: So the posterior release I look at as being permissive and not corrective. So if I get ten degrees of correction with a posterior release. I'm pretty happy. But what I think happens is that by doing the posterior release, you're allowing the soft tissues to stretch out more as the bone is doing that compensatory deformity that it does to get the knee straight. So I don't think the posterior release is really getting a whole lot out of my knee. I've had a couple of kids that probably have a more flexible sort of arthrogryposis where you can pretty much straighten the knee out with a posterior release. But in most cases, it just gets a little bit of relaxation of the knee joint, and then that'll hopefully carry through as the plates do their thing.
2: Thanks, Cyril. That was a great discussion on your paper. Do you have any last thoughts as like a take-home message to the audience?
3: No, I think this is one of the quivers in your uh, armamentarium in terms of treating these severe knee flexion contractures. The real take-home message, I think, is that kids with arthrogryposis have a lot of potential, and if we're able to correct their deformities, that very often we have the ability to get them up and walk. And that there's always a reason to keep trying. As long as the patient, the parents want to do it, keep trying to get them to maximize their potential. Perfect. Thank you. Julia?
0: Yeah, thanks, guys. That was a great discussion. So next, we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. John Birch from Texas Scottish Rite with his presentation, Comparison of the Prediction Accuracy of Lower Extremity Segment Length at Maturity of the Sanders Skeletal Stage Multiplier, Paley Multiplier, Grulich and Pyle Skeletal Age, and White Menelos Formula, which compared predicted femoral and tibial length based on these tools, to actual length on scanograms of 197 patients with an initial average age of 12.5 years. Interestingly, all methods slightly overestimated tibial length at maturity. The white Menalos formula with Grulich and Pyle skeletal age method was the most accurate in predicting femoral length at maturity. The Sanders multiplier slightly underestimated femoral length and overestimated tibial length, resulting in whole leg prediction accuracy similar to the white Menalos formula. Other important findings were that Sander's staging demonstrated high inter- and intra-rater reliability, and that in the epiphysiodesis age group, regardless of size, the femur and tibia grew approximately the same amount. Based on these findings, the most accurate prediction of epiphysiodesis effect may be to use correlation of skeletal staging with the white Menelos formula, although prediction is limited by the reliability of skeletal staging methods available. Again, lots of really interesting information here. So we'll let the moderators go into a little more detail.
1: Dr. Birch, this is Phil in Baltimore. I was wondering, you know, was the data significantly different for patients with three or four years of growth remaining? I noticed the multiplier of 1.08. I felt that was pretty low, indicating, you know, as you mentioned, a fairly high average age for the start. Was it significantly different in predictions for kids with lots of growth remaining or No.
4: Well, thanks very much, Phil, and thanks for having me in on this uh, conference. So I think that's a very good question. Uh, I'll probably start with the average multiplier of the 1.08, and I kind of hated that number because this is the average of the whole group, which is actually not all that far off the other multipliers. The Paley multiplier for this age range of 10 to 16 in boys is 1.31 to 101. And the 108 corresponds to 14, and a girls corresponds to somewhere between 11 and 12, which is basically right where we're talking about when people should have an epithesis. To directly answer your question, whether kids who had four years of growth remaining had an appreciable difference in terms of the multiplier accuracy compared to the ones with less, uh, I can't really say. I'd have to go back and specifically look at that data to answer it. Statistically, the important thing is that this was sort of a one-to-one comparison for, for each segment. So the, the 1.08 is just an average. It's really a, a one-to-one comparison across the board for each segment. So it's actually the standard deviations that matter there.
1: Great. Thank you. I'll look forward to the uh, additional data on the longer growths because you know, not everyone is eligible for an epiphysidesis, but we're still trying to predict in order to help patients know what to expect.
4: I'll make a prediction for you. Well, it's not actually the focus of this thing, which keeps coming back, and it's in the presentation, is, and I will really emphasize, in the epiphysidesis age group, the average distal femur and proximal tibia grow the same amount. And, and that's why the white mineral loss works and that's why the multipliers don't work as well because they make the assumption that longer segments are gonna grow more and shorter segments are gonna grow less. And while that's obviously gotta be true over the entirety of growth, It is not true in the epipsidesis age group on average. And that's been noted from Anderson's original data. It's there. And if you look at the multipliers and the plus one and two and minus one and two standard deviation multipliers, routinely, the minus two standard deviations uh, has a higher multiplier than the plus two. And then that gets lost when everybody settles on the 50th percentile. So the multipliers magnify a problem of growth in the epipsidesis group. Great,
2: thank you. Hey, John, this is Chris Yokes from Columbus, Ohio. Thanks for all the work you're doing on this. It's really fascinating. I know you've come out with several papers around this topic. For this particular study, you did mention that you were studying the normal, unoperated segments. Do you feel like the abnormal segment influenced the growth of the normal segment in any way?
4: Uh, yeah, that's an excellent question, and I think it was a big asterisk on this whole study because we extrapolated untouched healthy-appearing segments from a big epipsidesis database. So that's a big assumption that doing the epipsidesis didn't affect the ipsilateral healthy segment that wasn't operated on. However, I went over every diagnosis and every radiograph, and anybody that had any kind of sense of abnormal morphology was was excluded from the study. And then, as a sidebar, I've always been fascinated by how does an Ipsilati healthful segment respond to uh, shortening? And with the probable exception of uh, congenital pseudarthrosis of the tibia and neurofibromatosis, where there can be femoral overgrowth, it is actually very rare, in my experience, in the studies that we're doing, where there is compensatory overgrowth of a healthy segment. And then the last thing is I would anticipate that we would have found routinely an either indirect acceleration or deceleration on an ipsilateral untouched segment, and we've not noticed that. And I'll, I'll sort of add another thing is one of the concerns that I had was because a lot of these were the healthy shorter side segments was the distribution skewed towards less than 50th percentile. In other words, one or two standard deviation below the norm. And That actually is not true. The average cohort was... Uh, actually greater than 50th percentile. So this wasn't a specifically short but normal group. Thank you.
1: Dr. Birch, another question uh, from me in Baltimore. It's a bit of an awkward question to ask, but what would you would interpret as a minimally clinically sig- significant difference in this setting? So you know, How do we decide between the white menolos and the Sanders multiplier, the Paley multiplier is when is it not only statistically significantly different, but you would get a clinically significantly different result from using one over the other.
4: Well, I don't think you need to be the least bit embarrassed by that question, because I think that's really what matters. It doesn't have clinical relevance who, who cares? And yeah, we have been doing a fair bit of work on this database. And we specifically went to the statistical analysis of prediction accuracy, as opposed to other studies on the outcome of desis that would set a somewhat arbitrary threshold of a centimeter, or even at some of the white metal laws, two thirds of an inch, you know, that, that that's a lot of residual discrepancy to say it's okay. Plus, a number of these patients were kids who had an disease where the goal wasn't to make them, equal. And that's why we looked at it from this statistical accuracy. And then that immediately begs the question of clinical relevance when there's statistical relevance. So in terms of what do I think is clinically important, it's kind of like my guideline was always, this focus is all about epithesis and the accuracy of the timing for it. And when I was in clinic, the one thing I never wanted to do was to overcorrect, not even by a millimeter. We've all had that conversation. We've kind of gently dried the family to do any deuces because everybody has an initial resistance to operating on the normal side. So I never wanted to overcorrect. And the second is, what was I unhappy with in terms of the clinical result? And while this is purely subjective, I would say I was unhappy if I was off by more than a centimeter. So when we come down to clinical significance, for me, if I'm off by more than a centimeter, underestimating the amount of correction, then I'm not happy.
1: I think I have the same mentality, which certainly could be a result of having been your fellow. I'd have to really think about it.
4: (laughs) Sorry for you.
2: I agree. I I would rather be a centimeter too short than one millimeter too long. Dr. Birch, I admit I'm not familiar with the Sanders stages and Sanders multipliers, probably not as familiar as I should be. Is there a source where we can look those up and find them? How long did it take to learn how to use them?
4: Well, I don't think you should be embarrassed by that either, because actually, Jim Sanders had to guide me to his multiplier. And this all got started on it when we were having a podium discussion two years ago. Uh, So, specifically, His multipliers is practically hidden in table four of his 2011 JBJS article, which was entitled The Comparison of the Paley Method Using Chronologic Age with the Use of Skeletal Maturity for Predicting Mature Limb Length in Children. So that was JBJS 2001, table four. So the multipliers are in there. He describes his stages quite well in his 2008 JBJS article, which is actually about predicting scoliosis projection. He also has a really terrific PowerPoint presentation, which I'm sure he would be happy to give to anybody that goes through it all. So if you're not familiar with it, it takes a little bit to go through it. But having done that and then and using the access, actually a couple of advantages. It's fairly simple. From an epiphysidesis standpoint, this one, there's only six stages because one is too young and age is skeletally mature. Uh, so there's only six to keep in mind. And you're only looking at a couple of points. Plus, there's no gender difference. It's not an issue of boys this and girls that. So it actually gets pretty easy once you're comfortable with it. And if you're really looking at them serially, I get perfectly comfortable to just read them as opposed to constantly flip back and forth with the grueling compiled.
2: Maybe I'll make a plea to Phil. Maybe they can add that to the multiplier app uh, we all use in clinic for the phones.
1: We, we actually, we've just been talking about that. So we're going to see what we can do. But uh, one more question from me, Dr. Birch. We seem to be slowly getting closer and closer to optimizing our prediction of epipsedhesis. But it still remains, at least for me, frustratingly difficult, such that the reversible epipsiadesis techniques, you know, metazo or eight plate or staples start to look better and better. What do you think about that? Have you incorporated that into your practice? If I'm going to argue with myself, and say, well, those papers don't show any better average outcome as far as end leg length discrepancy. But what, what is your thought process on the reversible epiphysiodesis for leg length discrepancy?
4: Well, now, Phil, you just pushed a big red button on my chest. (laughs) I am, you know, so I understand the concept of the reversible epipsidiesis, but I think, number one, the first thing is, as I'm sure you're aware of, the literature strongly suggests that it's nowhere near as benign from the point of view of getting a symmetric epipsidesis effect as one would want, in that there is an opportunity for angular deformity. At least one center have abandoned using the metazode technique in the proximal tibia because they had too much angular deformity. And even um, Peter Stevens' paper during this session has a moderate number of angular deformity. Now, that's not to suggest that doesn't happen with doing a complete pipsi because it does happen in our series 3 or 4% of the time. But number one, it's not benign. And then number two, I personally reject the concept that you can remove the screw or the plate and screws in the future and anticipate that you're going to have normal symmetric growth of the physis I think that is extremely presumptive. It might be true but I would incorporate it into my practice when unequivocally it was documented to be true in a human population. Uh, otherwise, I'd much rather focus on getting this timing of permanent diseases as right as we can make it.
1: For me, I've I've not done any reversibles despite spending some time with Peter Stevens, who spent a lot of time thinking about it and doing it. I've stuck with permanent or lengthening just because I feel like that's what I know. And as you mentioned, there's another paper, I believe, uh, in the meeting discussing sagittal plane deformity from overly anterior, overly posterior, placing eight plates or similar devices for the same reason. And I, you know, if you look at fracture literature, we don't have huge amounts of wiggle room in the sagittal plane, either, to have good outcomes long-term for arthritis, although that's super vague. I agree.
4: Well, I agree with you.
2: Uh, John, this is Chris again. I don't have a last question, but I just wanted to give you the opportunity, if you'd like to share take-home message with the audience about your study.
4: Sure. Thank you very much. And I'd probably say, first of all, for the purpose of prediction of growth remaining in the lower limb, With emphasis in the epiphysidesis age range population, the best method seems to over and over again to be the white mental method using skeletal rather than chronologic age for most patients. The Sanders staging is easy to learn and has very high intra and inter-observer ICCs and has six stages and is general neutral, so that's good. But the downside of it is that there is not a direct correlation between Sander's stage and years of growth remaining, except for girls 3A and 3B. So you can't combine Sander's staging and the white mental loss method. And in the big scheme of things, I think the weakest link is still having a reproducible, reliable method of determining the skeletal age for most people. So hopefully we can get that with this or with the silvagrano-elecranon-only method, the demiglio champions. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks, everyone, for your participation. This was a really great discussion. I uh, really appreciate everyone's time, and I would encourage all of our listeners to check out the narrated presentations available online.